Hey, Jay, what ended up happening with the Inferno babies anyway? The ones the goblins kidnapped? They got gathered up by the New Mutants and X-Factor. And returned home, right? Oh, Miles, you beautiful, innocent, naive wildebeest. So not so much. Not so much. They got absorbed into Project Purgatory, a military project dedicated to weaponizing the supernatural. Okay, I know the demons wanted to use the babies to consolidate their power by opening portals to Limbo. What did the army want with them? To consolidate their power by opening portals to Limbo. What?! I'm Jay Rachel Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 118 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. So here we are, and we are going to do the third, I guess, of our four post-Inferno episodes. We are on our third of four teams, that being X-Factor. So X-Factor these days, pre-Inferno, had become publicly out as as the good guys, as mutant superheroes. They're living on ship off the coast of Manhattan. Ship being the big, sentient, talking, friendly, makes educational trips for the kids who live on it, formerly owned by Apocalypse, spaceship. And their team currently consists of the five original X-Men who have come through Inferno varyingly scathed. So Cyclops' ex-wife, Madeline Pryor, went evil, became super awesome, and died. Well, I guess she was always super awesome, but she got a different kind of awesome before she died. She got super villainy. And she transferred her memories and emotions associated with those memories to Jean Grey, along with the fragment of the Phoenix Force that she had inside her. So Jean was just Jean, and now she's Jean, and the Phoenix that impersonated Jean, and Madeline kind of all crammed together. Right, this is the first time she's had access to the memories of the Phoenix when it was pretending to be her and everyone thought it was her. Yeah, so that's kind of a big deal. Uh, Nathan Christopher Charles Summers. Dayspring, Ascani Sun, etc. Well, not yet. No, not yet. He's just got the four names now. And he has been returned to Cyclops, who has sole custody by virtue of now being his sole living parent. And he's just hanging out with them on ship with X-Factor. You think you had a weird childhood? Yeah, Nathan's got you beat. Also a weirder adulthood. Also bigger guns. Also tinier feet. Also a shinier eye. Also a metal arm. You really can't compete with Cable. Don't even try. Beast and Iceman are pretty much their bouncing blue selves. But Warren Worthington III, formerly Angel, now going by Archangel, is also blue, which is a less standard state for him, or was until recently when he was taken over by Apocalypse and turned into the Horseman of Death. He has just now, in the course of Inferno, rejoined his old compatriots, and he's still really struggling with the traces of Apocalypse's influence still left in his mind, and the fact that his wings now kill people. They do, yeah. He was all angsty and emo and all about revenge, but then he got his revenge. And so he's less angsty and emo, but still blue, and still metal-winged. Oh man, can you imagine if emu could shoot neurotoxin? Apparently it's pronounced emu, according to some of our Australian listeners. I didn't realize that. I wonder how the emu themselves say it. I think they say drumming sound, drumming sound, drumming sound. Yeah, I can't replicate their noises. That's I think I best. think the way you mainly pronounce it is, oh God, run. <laughs> while Entirely running. reasonable. They're Actively. Terrifying. From the other way, they took over Australia once. They kind of did, yeah. I think we talked about this a while yeah, ago. Yeah, they won a war. Don't mess with those fucking things. They're dinosaurs. They basically are. They will kick you to death. I don't want to be kicked to death. So speaking of feet... Note my graceful segue. <laughs> we said last time we talked about the Uncanny X-Men that we were looking at Rob Liefeld's first published X-Work. We were mistaken. This issue of X-Factor, that is X-Factor number 40, is in fact Rob Liefeld's first published X-Work. And unlike the Uncanny X-Men issue that we were looking at, it's really bad. 
It's so bad, you guys. It's so weird because Men, the X-Men issue that he did, his art was totally appropriate for it and really, like, hilarious and great. And I actually enjoyed it way more than I was expecting to. And this is much less so. This I definitely absolutely unquestionably believe was drawn by an 18-year-old. Yeah, and especially you get that impression with it contrasted, you know, from the previous arc, a uh, previous arc from Inferno with Walter Simonson's amazing draftsmanship. And the subsequent two issues, which are drawn by Art Adams. Liefeld does not come out looking well, and honestly, Liefeld here does not come out looking well by comparison to any of his other work. Like, this is not stylistic issues. This is just sort of frantic flailing. And again, it's interesting looking at his evolution as an artist because what we're seeing is here someone who is much, much less sophisticated and whose problems with anatomy and perspective are much less stylistically based and just sort of terrible. And we'll, of course, be talking much more about the art of Rob Liefeld as we get into the 90s, because he's probably the single most definitive artist of the early 90s, maybe alongside Jim Lee. But honestly, I would still give the uh, leg up to Liefeld in terms of his influence. Fortunately, this is not the issue that defined the 90s, because oh, man. I will say the way he draws some of the characters is kind of weird and strange, yes, but I sort of enjoy it. Like, I really like that Nathan Christopher Charles Summers, Dayspring, Ascani, Sun, etc. looks kind of like a middle-aged frogman. Miles, all babies look like middle-aged frogmen. You know that weird classical art where there'll be like baby Jesus and he's just sort of a tiny old man hanging out? Like, he's got the same proportions and facial features as uh, as an adult, but he's tiny? That's, that's not really Jesus specific. That's, that's that era of art specific. So just babies in general looked like that at that point? Yeah, you don't really see babies proportioned like babies until until later. Oh man, it would have been really weird to live at that time and be around that all the time, because I'm sure that people are just painting exactly what they saw instead of just having a weird artistic misinterpretation. I suspect that you are mistaken. I'm pretty sure I'm right. But anyway, so yeah, I mean, we've gotten our follow-up to Inferno in the X-Men with a couple of sort of catching-our-breath humorous issues. We've gotten it in New Mutants with the team merging with another team and having a major status quo shift. And here we are with X-Factor reacting to Inferno, I think, a lot more directly than either of those other teams. And appropriately, it starts with them leaving Madeline Pryor's funeral. And when you think about it, it's super sad because, yes, she went really evil and tried to kill Nathan Christopher and, you know, a lot of the world, but she was Cyclops' wife. And before all that stuff went down, she was a really awesome person who just didn't have the chance to be who she should have been. Yeah, no, I assume that her gravestone says Madeline Pryor died of editorial fiat. So you know what else is super weird about her funeral? That the X-Men aren't there? Yes, that the X-Men aren't there. That is just bizarre to me. Yeah, I mean, we even have a line from Beast. She never had a real life beyond us and the X-Men. It's fitting somehow that we alone have seen her to her final rest. I don't think it is, Hank. Like, the X-Men hung out with her way more than any of you except for Cyclops did. Like, what the hell? Well, he implies at least in that line that the X-Men were there, but we never see them. So if they were around, they were skulking in the shadows or perhaps ducked behind pews. I still would have really liked to have seen that. I mean, that's a bit of closure we never really get. We never get the fact that, yeah, I mean, we have Havoc certainly angst about how yet another girlfriend turned out to be evil. Specifically yet another redhead. Right. But what about the other X-Men that spent so long with her in the Outback and in San Francisco before that and, you know, went through the fall of the mutants? with her. What about Neil Conan? Neil Conan must have gotten really close to her during Fall of the Mutants. What's his take on this whole thing? That's a good question. We should ask him about that when he comes on the show. Yes, Neil Conan, if you're listening to this episode, just remind us. We'll bring it up when we talk. No, he said he would. We asked him on Twitter, but he's traveling. He's going to be out of the country for a while, and he said he would totally be up for coming on after that. <laughs> oh, man, that would be amazing. And we are holding him to that. So. Yes, yes, indeed. Are you there, Neil Conan? It's us, Jay and Miles. <laughs> I read that book. We have questions sort about of. periods. Yes, periods and Madeline Pryor. Um, <sighs> Sometimes we get away from ourselves on this show. 
I feel like we should let the listeners know that we are recording this episode kind of off from our regular schedule. We're double recording to kind of late at night because Kyle's been traveling and I've been sick and I'm about to be traveling and Miles was just traveling and is about to be traveling again. And basically July is a goddamn mess. So we're a little punchy at this point. <laughs> we are. It's true. But here we are making an episode for you because we love you. We definitely spent a really long time last episode talking about like supervillains in bathrooms. We did, peeing next to Arcade, as I recall. So I feel like this might even be a step up. <laughs> it's possible. But anyway, back to things that are substantially more serious than that. I mean, peeing is serious. You have to do it or else you get really major medical problems. I feel like Neil Conan explaining periods would be really serious. It's true. He'd do it with a lot of gravitas, but also a little bit of good-natured humor. I On top of the nation. So, yeah, the X-Factor is leaving this funeral, and <sighs> it's really sad, and I miss Madeline Pryor, but at least we get this little bit of closure, even if it's not what we were hoping for. So you wanted to talk about Archangel's outfit, too, because you've decided to be a sassy monster and Joan Rivers a funeral. Well, kind of. But what's interesting to me here is that we see Archangel in his usual, like, death apocalypse horseman guise, you know, the pink lines all over his body and the fact that his skin is blue and he appears to be to have this almost Genosian style skin suit. He's wearing a tuxedo over that. And that definitely very strongly implies that that is his skin now. Like, that blue and pink Walter Simonson design is just how his body is. We know he's got a separate skull mask that he wears over that. So, yeah, I had assumed that that was just what he looked like now. That it's not like in Cyclops' despair dream where he's just wearing a tuxedo over his costume. <laughs> but that's just what Cyclops does. I'd really like to think that, yeah. <laughs> Actually, there was a scene in X-Men the Animated Series where he's wearing a suit jacket over his Cyclops outfit as well, as I recall. God, that should just be a thing. I think it should. But yeah, so later on, we will find out that Archangel is in fact just wearing a costume. And when he's not wearing it, he's just got that sort of light blue colored skin that his face looks like right now. So he's just leaving it on right now as sort of a weird never nude thing. You know, that's probably it. It must smell really bad by this point. Maybe his hair is just terrible at this point, like it's still growing back from the weird apocalypse surgery and he just doesn't want anyone to see it. And that's why he's got the hood. Maybe it is sort of bonded to him now, but it takes a really long time for it to sort of detach and wear off like a temporary tattoo. Oh, maybe it was like that one time that I was in the Geek Olympathon dressed as Doc Brown from Back to the Future. And it took me like 45 minutes in the shower to get all that Aquanet out of my hair and to get it detangled. Dude, do you remember after we got married? And it took me like two hours to find all the bobby pins. You had a lot of hair back then. I did have a lot of hair back then. It was almost down to my waist. Oh, man. Uh, That's so weird that that was a thing. It, it really is. Yeah. No, but um, I think mostly that his archangel look was gradually worn through by lack of attention. I think that's what it is, yeah. I like, think it was just an inadvertent retcon as people sort of forgot that that was supposed to be what his skin was like these days. Which is fine. Although I, I like the temporary tattoo and then he liked it so much he got an outfit based on it. <laughs> yeah, well. So, yeah, they leave the funeral. Now, they are, of course, being watched by one of the premier watchers of heroes, that being Nanny. She shows up a lot in this era. And I actually really like the way Liefeld draws Nanny's ship, because she's got this weirdo Dr. Robotnik situation going on. She's kind of egg-shaped, and she's in this big sideways egg-shaped ship with big spider legs, and it's great, and I really genuinely like it. Liefeld does have a lot of fun with this kind of machinery-looking stuff. That is an area where I think he excels. So there are these babies who were saved from Inferno. We saw them a little bit in the last episode when the New Mutants were with them. And Nanny, of course, wants them for herself. Now, they're currently in X-Factor's custody, and X-Factor decides that they are going to take them to Washington to hand them off to Freedom Force, who is going to redistribute them to their remaining surviving parents and or hand them over to a secret military group. But that's actually going to be retconned back in later, so everyone's intentions here are good. They head to the Blackbird, which, um... Oh, no, no. First, they talk to the Greys, because you were talking about the way Liefeld draws Baby Cable. And for me, by far and away, the gem of the issue in terms of just 
absolutely goddamn nightmarish faces is Elaine Gray. She does look very strange and very cartoony, but in a sort of ghastly way. It's true. It's unreal and bizarre, and I can't really handle it. And they take the babies onto the Blackbird, which is similarly afflicted by really creative perspective. There's this one vertical panel. It bothered both of us when we were talking about it, I remember. But in the top part of the panel, we see the cockpit of the ship and a lot of X-Factor in the cockpit at this sort of isometric-y, three-quarters-y angle. And then at the bottom of the panel, we're looking at the various cradles that the babies are in, and we're looking at them straight down. And that doesn't work unless the ship has like this big bend in the middle that we can't see. See, I was less bothered by that than the fact that based on the way he draws that scene in a couple different panels... The inside of the Blackbird has to literally be the size of a ballroom. Well, okay, so it's not technically... It's got like a 20 or 30 foot ceiling. It's enormous. Like, that room does not fit inside that plane. Well, I, I gotta um actually you here, because this isn't the Blackbird technically. It's a ship that, capital S, ship made for X-Factor. And so maybe it is really weirdly dimensioned. We don't know. We don't know what ship does. Unless it is actually a TARDIS. There is no justification for the interior being that size. Well, I suppose that's true. 747s don't have interiors that size. <laughs> Now, as they're flying off, X-Factor is actually thinking about Nanny and the Orphan Maker since they've got, you know, all these babies on hand. They've had one encounter with those guys previously, specifically when Gene and Scott went to go try to find Nathan Christopher at the orphanage where Scott had grown up. And at that point, they found that Nanny had two very familiar kids as members of her Lost Boys, open parenthesis and girls, close parenthesis, that being Sarah Gray, Gene's sisters, kids. Right, that's Galen and Joey and... Scott and Jean made the call at that point. In fact, I think Jean made the call to leave them with Nanny because they could save either them or Nathan Christopher at that point. And it seemed like Nanny was at least going to keep the kids safe while Nathan Christopher was being carried off by demons whom they knew for sure were going to either eat or sacrifice him. And I do love that we get a little bit of Jean addressing that guilt. It's so easy to gloss over plot points like that. And here we get a nice little bit of character development, because the fact is, I would feel pretty shitty, too, as Jean in this position. Even if I knew I'd done the right thing, like, you know, there'd be some guilt going on. Jean's sister, Sarah, is also still missing. She is later on going to get murdered by Cameron Hodge's head on little techno-organic spider legs. Yeah, she's next going to show up in the Phalanx Covenant, I believe. I think it's implied that the right took her and killed her somewhere along the way, and then she got absorbed into the Phalanx once that became a thing. And that's unfortunate, because Sarah Gray should have been a bigger deal. I mean, as you may recall, when X-Factor first started, that was Chris Claremont's leading please-don't-bring-Jean-back alternative to bring Sarah Gray onto the team instead and allude to a weird power she had in this, like, Atlantis-Atuma-based storyline to be a mutant detector, sort of. But there's only so much time to wallow in guilt because Nanny in her fancy egg-based chip and Orphan Maker attack. Oh, and I love this line so much, like Nanny's line as they approach. Almost, my Orphan Maker. A hundred more yards and Nanny will extrude the grappling arms. My old babysitter always used to say that. It makes me feel nostalgic. The grappling arms. The grappling arms. Huh. You know. So, like, I'm imagining, you know, there's the wire mother, the cloth mother, the grappling mother. Okay, now, I like your Harlow reference there, but I'm going to say it's actually more like the layers of the blood-brain barrier, as I get to very rarely use my psychology degree. The Pia mater, the Dura mater, the arachnoid mater, and the grappling mater. Wait, how is Harlow not relevant to your psychology degree? It is, but I just really like the blood-brain barrier. The blood-brain barrier is awesome. It was one of my favorite things. Huh. The blood-brain barrier is cool. Nobody understands. I mean, it's useful. I appreciate having one. I, well, multiple layers. I would say three layers, but no, it's four, because there's the grappling layer. I don't think that's true. It's absolutely science. But anyway, there is a big fight. And as usual, it's really sad to see the orphan maker just blindly, loyally following Nanny, because we know that underneath the big robot suit, 
The orphan maker is a little kid that Nanny has saved and taken in, and he just wants to please his mom and keep her safe. We're going to learn more about their specific backstory shortly. For now, though, they are, alas, outclassed in the fight, and they are easily taken down by X-Factor, or relatively easily. Yeah, specifically when Archangel, when Warren, flies by and slashes the crap out of Nanny because he thinks she's just a robot because she looks like one. And she screams like a person, and he is horrified. Which makes sense. I mean, he's been trying to control his wings, he's been trying to control these bloodthirsty impulses he has, and here he thinks is somebody he can really cut loose against. It's a robot. I mean, he's played enough video games to know it's totally okay to kill robots. He's watched enough Saturday morning cartoons. And so the look on his face, that is something I think Liefeld does capture pretty well, when he realizes what he's done is uh, rough. And not rough in an Elaine Gray kind of way. Oh, right. Rough in a I am sad about the thing happening to this character who I like kind of way. Without Nanny controlling it, her ship, too, is in danger. Yeah, it is uh, apparently plummeting from the sky directly on top of the Washington Monument, like straight down. What are the odds, chum? I mean, pretty low, I would assume. But, uh, you know, these things happen, I suppose, when you're X-Factor. Yeah, I just like getting to do the tick voice. That's entirely reasonable. You know, thankfully, Jean's able to use her telekinesis to not impale their weird little bug ship on the Washington Monument and to give Nanny a chance to wake up a little in the Orphan Maker's arms and tell us about her story. Well, the Orphan Maker tells us her story. Specifically, Nanny was a scientist for, for the right. She is a cyberneticist. She was the one who designed their exo armor. And uh, to recap, the right was Cameron Hodge's anti-mutant organization that he uh, became the leader of and got a weird exo kind of armor thing himself. Before he got a fancy cloak and started dealing with demons. And also before he got decapitated. God, Cameron Hodge is terrible. He'll be back. Anyway, um, Nanny was developing you know, the exoskeletons and the power armor for the right, and she didn't realize at first that they were aggressive mutant hunters, and Nanny herself was a mutant, and she tried to fight back against them. She tried to rebel, but they sealed her up in one of her designs. This is the weird egg-shaped armor, and she subsequently escaped. Orphan Maker, whose story we also learn here, was the first child she saved, and she specifically saved him from Sinister, who was basically raising him up to be a second Cyclops, to be the kid he was gaslighting and manipulating in that orphanage. And he was, we learned, too dangerous to even be a marauder, but she changed him to keep him from going evil and gave him his suit of power armor to keep him safe. And now he goes around and kills parents for her. I actually really wish that had been followed up on because Nanny's backstory, it's all right. You know, whatever. She was a scientist for the bad guys, tried to rebel, and then they, you know, messed up her mind by imprisoning her in the armor. But the Orphan Maker story is really cool. The idea that he's got this, like, dark destiny, and she actually did do him a service by preventing him from becoming that person. In retrospect, I'm kind of shocked that they never teased him as the third Summer's brother. Yeah, you know, that actually would have been kind of cool and creepy. And okay, so Nanny and the Orphan Maker, people have varying opinions on them. I think a lot of people are sort of annoyed when they show up, like the same way that I tend to feel when Celine shows up. It's like, oh, great, you know, them again, whatever. But there is such little cool tidbits about them, and I think if they'd been used a little more sparingly and a little more deliberately in this era, they could have ended up something really special. I still maintain that they should get to live happily ever after in the Mojoverse. Working with the ex-babies and murdering the hell out of spineless ones. Exactly. That would have been pretty amazing, it's actually. It's like a world that is custom-built for those two to save. <laughs> it's true. And Longshot could hang out with them and be horrified by them, probably. They'd make it work. And so, yeah, I mean, Nanny's pretty much disabled. She's not dead, but she's not in great shape. And Jean is able to mind scan her and figure out where Joey and Galen are being kept, which, as it turns out, is behind secret door number one, sort of behind a panel in the wall. Of Nanny's ship. I should say we learn at this point, too, what Nanny's powers are, that she's basically a low-level telepath who's been enhancing her powers with the magic dust she uses. It makes sense. You know, she's very convincing, especially against children. I don't know if her powers are better against them or if they just have less psychic resistance or whatever, but, you know, there you go. 
they sort of rescue Joey and Galen. Unfortunately, Joey and Galen are still basically completely brainwashed. They remember their grandparents a little bit when they get back to the on ship, but they don't remember Jean at all. And it's unclear whether they remember their parents to any extent. And so uh, the Greys take Joey and Galen back. They say they're going to take care of them. And indeed, they do. They take care of them and help raise them until the entire Grey family is wiped out by the Shi'ar and that end of Grey story that makes me very sad and I wish hadn't happened. X-Factor unloads all of Nanny's kids from the cold sleep pods, and they are met by Freedom Force, who is actually there basically to pick up Nanny's kids and to pick up the Inferno babies. Freedom Force, as a reminder, are the former Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, the current incarnation of them anyway, led by Mystique, who are now working for Valerie Cooper of the government in exchange for not being hunted down. Ooh, don't forget the murder grandpas. The murder grandpas are also on Freedom Force, and so I think is Spider-Woman. Uh, she was. I don't think she is at this point. Yeah. I lose track. There have been a lot of spider women. They do various things. Who knows where they are? Kind of like the spiders in our house. I mean, you know, one will just crawl out from behind a curtain and you're like, oh, whatever. Let me get a glass and a piece of cardboard and I'll take you outside, Jessica Drew or whoever it is. To the high evolutionary. To the high evolutionary. All right, Ms. Carpenter, come on. We gotta go. Man, we have we have a ton of orb weavers and they're really cool. Orb weaver is also the coolest name for a spider. Like it sounds like some kind of a mage subclass or specialization. Oh, I bet it is. I guess they're all wizards. All of the spiders in our house are wizards. I knew it. I feel much less comfortable with the idea of having an infestation of wizards in our yard than an infestation of spiders. Now I'm just imagining spiders with really kick-ass beards that go down and get tangled up in their various eight legs. Oh man, but like spinning their beards out into their webs. Everything about this is amazing, and I think I know my next D&D character. Now I just need to find a DM who will let me play that character. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, well. So, yeah, Freedom Force is actually being pretty decent here. They're like, hey, okay, we'll turn these kids over. They'll be fine. We're totally not going to give them to a secret government program. Oh, and also, Rusty Collins, so I know you escaped from a naval prison, but you did some good stuff, so you're going to get furloughed. You don't have to go back to jail. We're going to release you to yourself and X-Factor, basically. Yeah, he's released on his own recognizance until his actual trial. I love the word recognizance. I never get to use it. Too bad I stole that opportunity out from under you. We are now rivals forever. Now we must fight. Or we could just keep doing the podcast. I guess let's Didn't do that. Didn't we actually cover how that would end, like, in an early episode? Yeah, yeah, you could totally kick my ass. There's really no question there. I'd fight dirty. I just, I'm a lover, not a fighter, you know? So, anyway, point being, Freedom Force is actually being kind of cool, and Rusty doesn't have to go back to jail and can keep hanging out with all the kids and, you know, become briefly a member of the New Mutants. Yay! And then trolls! Right, okay. So, that's this issue. That's number 40. It's, you know, it's fine. Some important plot stuff does happen, even if we're not big fans of the art. The next two-parter, number 41 and 42 is so unexpected and weird and so much fun. Okay, X-Factor 41 and 42 are basically X-Factor does Excalibur. Not in a porn sense, more like in a taking on their genre briefly sense. But also with a little bit of the mighty Thor, which, you know, makes some sense because Louis Simonson is a Simonson and, you know, Thor runs in their family. And these are drawn by Art Adams, who I believe we last saw on either X-Men or the Longshot miniseries. I think he's done some annuals, but yeah, I certainly know him yeah. best from the Longshot series because I love that series, which was one of his earliest works. And man, watching Art Adams across this time period, like starting with the Longshot miniseries, getting to this point, is really watching him develop and crystallize as an artist. We're seeing him gain a lot more nuance, a lot more flexibility. He's getting a lot better with faces, with casual positioning. I don't know if he'd done a lot of life drawing between or over the course of this, but he's gotten palpably better. Yeah. I mean, you can certainly trace some of the more unfortunate aspects of the 90s to his artistic style, but he really is one of the greats. Like, I always enjoy seeing him show up for a comic. And here he's drawing kind of a great set of characters. 
Now, the first and the primary of those characters, the one around whom the story is centered, is a kid who gets the mutant codename of Alchemy. And he was, I believe, actually the product of a write-in contest. In fact, he was. There is what was called the Mutant Registration Contest around the fall of the mutants era. And contestants would, like, cut out these cards from pages uh, in their comics and write in, you know, a mutant registration card for a mutant character that they created. And the winner of this contest would not only get to get no money for an idea they came up with, but they'd get to see their character in a new mutant story, or, as it eventually turned out, this X-Factor story. I feel like we should do some kind of listener contest based on this, but it's such a precise and exact thing. Could we do a listener contest contest where you can send in your ideas for a contest? We need a form for the listener contest contest. Maybe we need a contest to make the form for the listener contest. Oh man, this is getting really confusing. Okay, yes, this is it. This is the form for the... No, what? Maybe we should just move on. I'm going to make a form, damn it. <laughs> Some sort and of form. And I will put it, it will be in the uh, the visual companion to this episode. I've got two weeks to do it because we're recording in advance. And we'll, we'll put it up and you can fill it in carefully with your ideas for a listener contest. We will choose a contest from among those. And your prize will be that we will actually put on that contest. I think I followed that. Uh, the listeners may need to rewind that segment a couple times to make sense of it. Look, worst comes to worst, we'll end up with a decent bit character who shows up for one two issue arc and then comes back much later in Excalibur. That's true, yeah, we do see alchemy and the trolls we're going to be talking about much later in an Excalibur story, but this one's more fun, I think. So, this issue starts, speaking of trolls, with a troll in England. He smells gold and he follows his nose... To Fruit Loops. No, to a teenager's window, where a kid who looks a lot like the main character of Flight of Dragons, actually... He really does! Yeah, Peter, what's his face? Man, Flight of Dragons is my favorite Rankin-Bass movie. I used to watch it all the time when I was a kid. This is a really Rankin-Bass story. Like, the trolls are really Rankin-Bass looking, too. I think they kind of are. Oh, man, now I want to see this as a Rankin-Bass animated movie, complete with some, like, warbly, you know, trolls in London kind of theme song. That was literally just the Flight of Dragon theme song with other words. Well, I mean, they could change the tune if they wanted, but it's a pretty good tune, so maybe they should just keep it. Sure. Now, the creatively named Tom Jones is studying hard to get into university and get his family out of poverty, and he is studying chemistry, which always gives him a headache. He's trying to memorize the the elemental data for a bunch of different metals, and what he doesn't notice is that while he's doing it every time, he transmutes his pen into that metal. Now, the troll, on the other hand, is hip to what this kid is up to. He's hip to his jive lingo. That, too. Mm -hmm. This troll is happening. He knows about the cool rock and roll musics and boomboxes. That's right. He will help you hook up your Nintendo Genesis. (laughs) But first, he will kidnap you because he wants more gold. Right. And I do want to also say that this kid Alchemy's backstory totally sounds like a hastily created role-playing characters one story, speaking of role-playing characters, like for a role-playing one-shot. All right, but why is he in the pub? Uh, Well, you know, he wanted to get a drink because he had a headache from uh, turning all of the pen to the different metal types. It's a one-shot. You don't have to worry about it too much. Just give him a slight excuse to be in the tavern. He'll meet the party. They'll go into the cave. Half of them will die, and that'll be the one-shot. Ah, fine. Okay, so you're all at the same table. (laughs) Exactly. You're at a table with a bunch of trolls who are explaining their plan. Now, these trolls are all about reclaiming England for the magic folks from the newfangled tech, and they are going to do it somehow with the aid of Tom, despite the fact that his mother does her best to whack them on the heads with brooms, which always reminds me of Katie's mom and the moose. Oh, yeah, Jay's lady friend's mom uh, lives in Alaska. Right, Katie grew up in Alaska, and Katie's mom, who is still there, grows ornamental crab apples, of which she is very protective, and she engages in an annual war against the local moose, which during winter apparently wander out of the nearby wilderness and into Anchorage like stray cats to basically show up at Susie's house and eat her crab apples. 
And um, apparently once when Katie was in high school, one of them got almost to the porch and Susie went out and found one of the kids skis because they were all doing cross country and at school and, and just whacked the moose on the nose because, yeah, she's fearless. She's scrappy, man. That actually is kind of analogous to whacking a troll with a broom because aren't mooses, mooses, mooses like 30 feet tall and like 40,000 pounds? I mean, those things are huge. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah, they're really, really, really big, and you don't start fights with moose. But I really do love Mrs. Jones, because, you know, someone's stealing your kid, even if they're a weird fantasy creature, whack them with a broom. This makes perfect sense. Or a ski. Or a ski. It's not effective, because, you know, troll. Meanwhile, back on ship. Gina and Warren are watching the New Mutants train, and reminiscing about the good old days before they were both really, really warped. Yeah, because, you know, Jean's got, like, the Phoenix Force and Madeline Pryor in her head, and Archangel is now, you know, the living embodiment of death with some metal murder wings. It's pretty rough. But you know what I love about this scene? The kids? Getting to see a young group of mutants train with an older, more experienced group of mutants. Because the new mutants used to train with the X-Men or watched over by the X-Men or whatever all the time back in the day. And that was such a cool dynamic to have the grown-up team and the kid team. And, you know, yeah, the kids are always sneaking off to do whatever, but they're buds. Like, the grown-ups are mentors. And I really wish we got to see more of this in this era. This particular session is being overseen by the long-suffering Hank and Bobby, who have been having to deal with Boom Boom's shit pretty much nonstop since the start. Yeah, that's true, because, like, Boom Boom's earliest appearances were giving hell to Hank and Bobby. I kind of forgot about that part. Yeah, Sam is flying an obstacle course, and Boom Boom launches a bomb at him. And I do love Boom Boom here, because remember, you know, this is when the Exterminators and the New Mutants have first hooked up, and Boom Boom is just crazy about Cannonball, and doesn't understand why he doesn't return her attention. Because... Okay, to be fair, in her defense, why would you not be crazy about Boom Boom? She's fucking awesome. Right, and she says as much. What's the matter with Sam? Doesn't he like girls? And Sunspot responds, You mean because he's not throwing himself at you, Boom Boom? His girlfriend's lost in space, possibly dead. Maybe he's not in the mood for you. Well, it might be smart if he was, considering. And so it's time bomb time, because if you like a boy, you should clearly throw an explosive at his face. In Boom Boom's defense, Sam is nigh invulnerable when blasted. I'm sure he's mentioned that at least once since they met up. No, she knows. She brings it up later. And X-Factor manages to deflect the time bomb and is scolding her, and Cannonball, in fact, comes in to her defense. Go easy on her, okay, Bobby? Boom Boom wouldn't hurt me. Really. She's more responsible than she looks. What's wrong with how I look? And at that point, she starts behaving like an angel to impress Sam, and everyone else is just sort of rolling their eyes. This type of, like, I don't know, hijinks, for lack of a better term, like these dorky, wonderful kids, I love this stuff. And man, this is one of the reasons that I was so sad when they became X-Force, because so much of that is lost. So much of that just, like, play is lost and replaced with, you know, giant guns and murder. They're really just not the same. Um, It's true. (laughs) Hijinks and murder are not the same. Right, and Angel and Jean are likewise impressed by this, but mostly wistful about how they are no longer nearly so innocent, how the kids have all changed, and... They've changed even more and absorbed other consciousnesses and stuff like that. And Jean is really worried. She's worried that with, you know, Maddie and the Phoenix inside her mind, she's going to go all dark again. She's going to turn into what her other counterparts who were sort of like her did. Something just evil, basically. Fight it, Jeannie. You're stronger than you know. Stronger than any of us. With Scott, with me, the light and darkness who war. But you'll always stand in the light. And, you know, when it's straight up Jean, I mean, yeah, there's some darkness, and yeah, she's a creature of passion, absolutely, but she's one of the more emotionally strong X-Men characters I think we'll ever see. But she's also consistently one of the more volatile and impulsive. I mean, again, I think that 
Archangel is here falling into the Silver Age writing Jean Grey trap of artificially elevating her and basically not giving her the chances to grow and develop as a more multidimensional character. But still, given their history, having him have that much faith in her and that much faith in her just being a good person, I think it makes sense because he's been around her in largely the Silver Age. And in X Factor, where she really, I think, has held up that, you know, end of uh, positive compassion and humanity. I mean, kind of. She's also wrecked the entire upper floor along with Scott and gone into snits and had the option to be a lot more difficult and a lot more frustrated and a lot more overtly angry than she did get to be in books before. And I really resent the functional erasure of that. I don't want to lose that character development. It's really important to me. I want to see her get to be more. And thankfully, we will. I mean, Jean does remain a pretty multidimensional character. Honestly, for as long as she lives, until she dies in the early 2000s. Sometimes. I think you have more faith in the subsequent writers who handle her than I do. I see that as happening really, really on and off, okay. and really inconsistently. Well, that's fair, I suppose. But in this era, I definitely enjoy the hell out of Jean. Yeah, Simonson writes her really well. Now, speaking of people who've gone through a lot of changes, Scott is basically busy being a full-time parent, hanging out with his kid. I assume rebonding with it and learning to properly take care of it, having effectively abandoned it very early in its life. It's true. He's, you know, he gets a second chance to be a good dad. Yeah, babies don't really remember stuff, so. They're like goldfish. Pretty much. They're also like sharks. If they ever stop moving, they die. Did you know that? That's why it's important to keep just swinging your baby around all the time. Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is not a good source for parenting advice. Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is really not a good source for any kind of advice. I think we covered this the time we told people how not to fight bears. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true, I suppose. And this scene is really heartwarming. I mean, seeing the new mutants just get to be kids along with the exterminators, seeing Cyclops get to be a dad and X-Factor bond. And I mean, you know, even Jean be really sort of motherly and protective or maybe more big sistery toward Mirage, whose death visions and headaches are getting worse and worse. Like... This is such a wonderful, wonderful status quo. Ship actually agrees with you and takes a moment to acknowledge that before letting them know that, in fact, a supervillain has appeared. They've gotten a distress call from Tom Jones's mother. And shall Ship tell her that X-Factor is on vacation and they can't help her with her abducted son? Or will they be heading to England? And I do love that. Ship's like, yeah, sorry, but, you know, duty calls. And I also like this aspect of the status quo that X-Factor are public superheroes. So, like, of course, if there was a mutant-looking problem, because, you know, trolls, mutants, it's hard to tell for your average layperson, they'd be called in for that. Like, having them be sort of mutant Avengers, it's a cool thing. They worry briefly about what to do with the kids, the new mutants and the exterminators, and the kids reassure them that they've got everything under control, to which Jean responds... Thank you all. You're very generous, and we know that you'll behave responsibly. You always have. If you need proof that X-Factor has not sat down and had a conversation with Magneto in the last several years, there you go. Don't you understand, Gene? These kids are terrible. I know we used to be nemeses, but seriously, trust me on this one. They tried to get themselves killed like every five minutes. And sometimes they succeed. It's true. So, yeah, they fly off in one of those ship ships. What do you call a ship ship? What do you call a ship that ship makes? A subship? A subship? Metaship? They bring Nathan Christopher, which is so weird and wildly irresponsible. His diapers and bottles are packed in case of just such an emergency. Like, wait, how is it safer to bring this kid with you than to leave him with the teenagers? I mean, I know that's not really safe, but you guys tend to get into a lot of trouble. You get strapped to big machines by apocalypse like every other week. Jean Grey is the fun step-parent. She really is, and I enjoy this because of course she dives right in. And this actually makes me wonder, like, so we know she got Madeline Pryor's memories, right? And we know she loves Scott, but she really treats Nathan like her own kid. She also got Madeline Pryor's sense of, like, 
cheerful child endangerment, apparently. Well, I guess that's true. But seriously, I mean, does she have the emotional connection to Nathan that she does because of Madeline Pryor's memories? Well, she's had a telepathic bond with him from before Madeline's death. So I assume that that was there, too. And she seems to be generally pro-babies. Yeah, yeah, that's reasonable. I mean, she's going to freak the hell out when she finds out who Rachel really is later. But for now, at least she's okay with theoretical babies. She's okay with being the cool stepmom who lets the kid come along to fight supervillains. God, I still can't believe they keep doing that. It's like, I'm going to bring the baby along to the local Museum of Science and Industry. I'm going to take the baby to the zoo. I'm going to get captured with the baby in a troll cave. I'm just going to bring the baby to the fucking troll cave, too. It's just going to be a thing. That's going to be our thing now. X Factor and a baby. And this will actually be the status quo for, like, a surprisingly long time. Yeah, they just bring the kid around. And he's he's going to have some defense after this that he'll develop over the course of this. But right now, he's just a fucking baby. And I really enjoy when they do get to England and they talk to Tom Jones's mom, who I'm sure is a first name, but I've just been calling her Mrs. Jones. You you have a baby with you. Yes, ma'am. We're hoping to make the world record for the superhero team with the youngest member. We have Power Pack beat all out on this one. Yes, I see. I I think. I didn't realize there was a competition, but you Americans are keen on competitions. And after all, you'd expect superheroes to be a bit eccentric. It's an eccentric life you lead. And it was an eccentric sort of giant, wasn't it? You know what this really makes me want? This beast bit. For him to talk to Mrs. Jones all the time because this is hilarious? No, I want someone to write Doonesbury crossover fanfiction where Roland Headley goes and tries to do a report on X-Factor, but Bobby and Hank just lie to him nonstop, and then he publishes the whole thing, like when he tries to write about Walden Puddle and they convince him that a lilac bush is a special artisanal strain of pot. (laughs) That would actually be amazing. And then, like, uh, Hank and Bobby just go and get beers with Trish Tilby and laugh at Roland Headley. You could actually just transpose all of the dialogue. Like, you know, what's it about? Yeah, sex and drugs, really. Nothing but sex. Sex and drugs, said okay. McCoy. I want this to be like an Arrested Westeros thing where they take Arrested Development dialogue and put it on a Game of Thrones screen caps, except with Doonesbury yes. and X-Factor. No, specifically Walden Puddle commune era, Doonesbury and X-Factor. Okay, I feel like we may be the only two people in the world who love X-Factor and Doonesbury this combination of much, but for us, this would be amazing. This is, this is trust us, this is brilliant. It totally is brilliant. So anyway, X-Factor's like, all right, we'll take the case. We're going to find your kid because it's the heroic thing to do and we're totally heroes. Wait, we've only met a couple journalists, so it would have to be either like Trish Tilby or Neil Conan. <laughs> Work Neil Conan in whenever possible. Always. Neil Conan is everywhere. So anyway, trolls. X-Factor is able to track the trolls by following a trail of golden objects, which Tom has been transmuting initially unconsciously and then as he realizes that he's able to do it and leads them thus to the Trolls' lair, where they meet a team of five trolls. This is Adams having a blast. He's drawing monsters from Sasquatches to gargoyles to more traditional humanoid trolls, and these guys have fairly traditional troll names. There's Fi, Fae, Fee, Foe, and Fum. All with a PH at the beginning, of course. Yes, and they are respectively. Fi is the fairly traditional troll from the beginning. Fae is a shapeshifter who also keeps quoting literature with, like, every single line. He's wrong sometimes, though. Uh, he does misquote sometimes, it's true. Yeah, it's great. Fee is a rock golem-looking dude, and he is very erudite. He's also very skilled in hand-to-hand combat. Foe is just sort of a gargoyle. He's actually my favorite design among them. Like, Adams gets to draw so much glorious detail on all of his scales and stuff. Foe is a New World troll. He is specifically a Sasquatch, and he's just a big old abominable snowman. He's kind of dumb, fairly good-natured, and generally impervious to ice. And so X-Factor and the trolls pair off and fight, because, you know, there's five of each. I do enjoy that Beast tries to use Judo on Fee, and Fee also knows Judo, so they have a big Judo fight. 
And I gotta say, a blue furry scientist and a big rock golem troll having a judo fight while trying to save and kidnap, respectively, a kid who can transmute things to gold is not a plot element I think I've ever seen before. Unfortunately for X-Factor, they are wildly outmatched. The trolls are huge, they are millennia old, and they manage to very handily capture X-Factor and reveal their plan. They are going to force Tom to transmute a bunch of stuff into gold, which they are going to use to ruin Britain's economy. One of the trolls talks about how they're going to use, and I quote, the human science of economics to destroy you all, which is kind of awesome. So this kind of adds a whole new potential dimension to Brexit. You know, I hadn't considered the idea that mystical trolls were trying to take England back for the magical creatures that used to be there by destroying the economy, but huh. It would kind of make sense, wouldn't it? I mean, I only know a little about British politics, but there are certainly more parallels than the zero that I was expecting. All right, that brings us to X-Factor 42. The trolls, having neatly dispatched X-Factor, head to the surface. Using a sweet mechanical sarcophagus trap door in the graveyard above the Okay, we need one of those. We need one of those in Castle Sexy Dracula. That thing is rad. We've already established that pneumatic tubes come first, Miles. That is a good point, because they are also the most efficient way to transport guinea pigs. I mean, think about it. Vump. Squeep, 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 squeep. It'd be great. You really need to have headquarters priorities, is the thing that I'm saying. I'm just saying. We also need to get some guinea pigs. Did we put those on the shopping list? We need some. I don't know. I mean, cereal first. Cereal, pneumatic tubes, guinea pigs. Okay, that's a reasonable order of things. Anyway... The next task for the trolls is to find something suitably impressive to force Tom to transmute, because not only do they need to generate a large quantity of gold, they need to get the attention of the British people, the press, and the world at large. And so there's this great scene when they're flying around on a magic carpet, which they've acquired through, I don't know, some magical means in their they're past. They're trolls. They're very old. They've got access to this kind of thing. Presumably, they just had it sitting around. They got a lot of plus one long swords as well. You know, you're a fantasy creature for a while. You accumulate this stuff. I'm sure they got a couple of bags of holding. Like two rings of protection? At least, But they're yeah. not as good as the ones your party already has, so you just sell them. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's kind of unfortunate. But anyway, yeah, so they're just flying all around, and they eventually decide on the White Tower in the Tower of London. Now, randomly enough, at this point in continuity, Excalibur's actually in there. Like, it's complicated, we'll get to it, but they're fighting inside that, so uh, it's a good thing that doesn't happen. That actually doesn't come up in X-Factor at all. My, my main association right now with the Tower of London is that I recently discovered that its Raven Master has a Twitter account where he posts really excellent vines of him petting the Ravens. Is Raven Master a member of a metal band where each member of the band gets their own kick-ass title? Because that's a kick-ass title. No, that is his job. He is the official Raven Master of the Tower of London. There may be a more complicated title. He does have a sweet uniform, and he has a lot of Raven friends who he hangs out with and pets and posts pictures of on the internet. Oh, man. Being a system administrator sucks compared to that. Yeah, no, this dude is amazing. There are all of these videos of him talking sweetly to the Ravens and them gronking back at him. Ravens make such weird, undignified sounds. I love it. It's just sort of a... They are also dinosaurs, but they're like chill dinosaurs. They totally are. They are our dinosaur buddies. So I was really into The Darkest Rising when I was a kid. We both were. I think we mentioned that last episode, actually. We alluded to it. We didn't actually contextualize those illusions at all. Oh, right. Well, when we talked about The Great King, that's one of the books in the series. No, we talked about it a lot with Kurt Busiek. We all did the rhyme together. But in The Darkest Rising, like Ravens factor really heavily into the plot. They sort of foretell the coming of evil stuff. And I'd never seen a raven. I'd never heard a raven. So I just imagined they were like these super intimidating creatures. And they are really big and thus kind of, you know, I wouldn't want one of them to fly into my face. But yeah, sounds, they, will, they will totally kick your ass. I really imagine their sounds sounding totally different than the sort of like grunting gronking that they do in real life. Ravens are great, man. They totally are. I really want raven buddies. That's reasonable. They will remember you and they will pass down your information generationally and they will like bring you presents. They can learn how to work vending machines. They're super smart. Whoa. 
Ravens are great. Oh, man. Except for Mystique. She's kind of a jerk. Raven Darkholm? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's true. But the other ravens are good, and the tower ravens are really adorable and fluffy. Okay, well, good. That's all excellent. They're cool. Right, where were Portentious we? Portentous and fluffy. Yes, trolls. And so Tom's like, no way am I going to transmute the Tower of London. That's like a big important thing in my country where I live and I care about. So, no. And they're like, come on, Tom. Your country is literally full of landmarks. Like, you've got medieval castles. You can't spit without hitting a medieval castle. But what they actually do is, as a nearby dog comes up to attack them, one of them slashes its throat seemingly fatally. And Tom tries to put it out of its misery by doing the only thing he can do, which is turning it to gold, and discovers that that basically puts it in a state of suspended animation. Yeah, so like, it may be dying, but because it's sort of frozen in time due to now being made of metal, maybe it could be alive again if you could get it to the appropriate dog doctor probably not probably it's just frozen in extremely shiny agony forever if it's a mutant then he could take it to the morlocks underneath new york and bring it to healer this is a very D storyline so that's appropriate it's the sort of thing where your party gets completely sidetracked by this one minor npc that you never intended to be important and like they you know go way out of their way to like a different plane of existence to save this person yeah and the gm's like guys the trolls that's th- fine fine you fucking go to new york okay but they don't go to new york because this isn't D, this is x factor and the trolls decide having seen that tom can transmute living matter that they're going to go for something much more impressive they're going to have him transmute the goddamn queen and now i'm just imagining the queen like still doing that weird like side to side wave thing that she does but she's made of gold and she's still doing it anyway and her corgis just don't notice a difference they're gold too and they're just still doing their royal corgi thing you can't stop a corgi no they're they're invincible most people don't know that they're actually immune to bullets and love That's one of my favorite Psychonauts lines. So they're like, all right, screw it. Let's have you transmute the queen and we can threaten you into doing so. So they head to Buckingham Palace. They're confronted by the guards who are like, crap, somebody call Excalibur. I love it when there are little references to the other books. But they can't because Excalibur is fighting in the Tower of London, although they don't mention that. Meanwhile, underground, X-Factor has been left guarded by two trolls who, while ordered not to harm the main superhero team, have been given no such instructions regarding baby Nathan Christopher, who has just resurfaced, crawling around and being adorable. And so one of the trolls tries to step on the baby. Don't step on babies, you guys. Just just please don't. Well, fortunately for this baby, he immediately manifests a force field bubble, which I initially thought was Gene, but actually we're going to see him be able to generate this bubble later on, and it's basically how X-Factor is able to just drag him around with them on really dangerous adventures, and he just sort of stays happily enclosed. Interestingly, later on, when Jubilee acquires a baby, it is similarly protected, although that bubble is specifically engineered by several of her students. What I really enjoy about baby Nathan Christopher being in this bubble is, A, it's a cool little bit of foreshadowing that he will eventually end up manifesting telekinesis. B, it's hilarious because it just looks like a hamster ball. Well, no, the thing is, my B was that it looks like he's a character from Super Monkey Ball. You remember that old Dreamcast game where you were like a monkey and you ran around in the transparent balls and you had to not fall off stuff? I mostly remember playing obscenely large volumes of Fantasy Star Online. God, we did play that a ton. Yeah, we played that so much. And also Crazy Taxi, also known as Yeah, 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 the game. I didn't actually play that. I just watched you play it a bunch. It was a lot of fun. That made me kind of motion sick. Uh, That's entirely reasonable. But yes, so Nathan Christopher is okay. Now, Jean wakes up, presumably because of her emotional bond with baby Nathan, or possibly because the big gigantic troll just smashed his foot into the ground, and is like, wait a minute, you tried to step on my dude's son and kill him, and stepping on babies is like my least favorite thing that a troll can do, and she blasts the crap out of them with her telekinesis. The team effectively subdues the two trolls they've been left with and heads off to confront the others, which are running around with Tom fighting police and then fleeing because they don't want Tom to get accidentally shot. Archangel is able to cut the flying carpet in half, 
leaving a troll dangling between its halves, which Cyclops then disintegrates and leaving the troll crashing to the ground. My carpet! My magic flying carpet! Gone! Destroyed! Flee! Flee! Though follow I cannot, our glorious plan must still succeed! The troll's descent smashes them back into the underground, where Tom is able to clue an X-Factor to the troll's main weakness, which, as we all know from reading large amounts of fantasy and Lord of the Rings and all of that fun stuff, is sunlight. Now, X-Factor tries to fight them for a while. The trolls declaim in marvelous, grandiloquent, vaguely Asgardian, or at least Asgardian-tinged dialogue. What horror has appeared, Almighty Fi? Ice! A wall of ice thrown up by their ice man. A wall they think will entrap us, but they reckon not the strength of trolls. Okay, so Louise Simonson is writing this book, and her husband, Walter Simonson, is writing Thor during this era. So do you think that Louise and Walter Simonson just talk to each other like this at home, like all sort of grandiloquent and fantasy-tacular? God, I hope so. Me too. Oh man, if we were the Simonsons, we totally would. We're not that cool. Nobody's that cool. I love the Simonsons. They both do such amazing work, and they seem like really nice, sweet people. So anyway... So, anyway. Trolls. Um, so Tom thinks, well, maybe I could turn the trolls to gold, but he doesn't want to do that because it wouldn't really kill them, but it would basically effectively kill them. And he'd have no idea how to turn them back, like, potentially ever. X-Factor confronts them, and Tom once again reminds him of the trolls' weakness, that they can be taken out by sunlight, so X-Factor blasts through the roof, and are unfortunately foiled by the fact that they are in England, where it's cloudy and rainy. Pretty much all the time. Kind of like Portland in that regard. I think if this had happened in Portland... Same kind of deal. Dude, Portland has been super sunny all week. It wasn't as sunny as I wanted on Sunday when I wanted to float on the river. I went outside today and the scare ball was definitely in high form. Oh, was it like in Super Mario Brothers 3 where it had the angry face and it would dive down at you and you would die a whole lot? It was exactly like that. Oh, man, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm glad you had enough lives to still be here to record afterwards. Well, I got really good at rolling dodges. Oh. So I got a haircut and came home. You could roll dodge in Mario 3? I've been playing it I mean, I could. Oh. Oh, I was definitely playing it wrong. I selected Mario when I should have selected Jay. Right. Nah, well, live and learn. So, yeah, so that really doesn't work. Now, the trolls are realizing that Tom is being totally uncooperative and shouting their weaknesses at X-Factor and refusing to turn the queen to gold. And they're annoyed, so they're like, you know what? We can make him an offer he can't refuse. Let's go find his mom. Fortunately, we're right under the apartment, so we'll just reach up and grab her. Because we coincidentally ended up here, which they have. And they do. And she is mourning the loss of her beloved son and that he will never wear the socks that she is currently folding for him. Oh, yeah. Here's my little Tommy's socks. Oh, I do pray that X-Factor finds him, and he'll wear them. She's so your mother. She kind of is my mother. I think my mother would worry about my socks if I was kidnapped by no, trolls. No, she's, she's capable of sentimentalizing literally anything. Your mother is like a cross between Mrs. Jones and Linda Belcher. From Bob's Burgers? Yeah. Yeah, huh. she's amazing. She breaks into song, and she sentimentalizes socks. She's pretty great. Your, Miles' mom is super rad. Uh, yeah, she we totally should, is. We should really get her on the podcast eventually. I'm not sure that she's ever read X-Men. That's okay. We can explain them to her. Oh, well, hey. She can explain your childhood X-Men drawings because she kept all of them. Oh, man. Yeah, we found a bunch more. We got to get some of those posted. We are pretty sure that Miles gave one of his grandparents a Shatterstar birthday card. <laughs> it's true. And it was Shatterstar in that really terrible costume they got after his first one. Like the one with the red and the blue, not just the white one with the weird shoulder thing. We totally need to get your mom on the podcast. <laughs> Maybe so. I bet you told her about all this stuff. I bet she remembers weird bits of it. It's quite possible. So Tom's like, okay, they've got my mom. They're going to squish her head. X-Factor's not going to be able to save us in time. Well, fuck. And he closes his eyes and grits his teeth and turns the trolls to gold. 
And he's very contrite about this. He declares that he will dedicate his life forthwith to undoing this terrible wrong he has done in, in turning trolls to gold. Don't worry, Fee and Fi. I'll go to college and become a molecular biochemist. I'll take the superhero name Alchemy and study and do research until I know all there is to know about molecular interactions. I'll maybe even win a Nobel Prize because of my astounding discoveries. And when I make my acceptance speech, I'll thank you for inspiring me to these great heights. And then in a special ceremony, I'll change you back to flesh and blood. And then you can kidnap me again. And in fact, the thing is, like, later on, more trolls do kidnap him and threaten his mother, like, again, in the next Caliber story. It's kind of the same plot. Oh, kiddo. But you know what? I want an alternate history where he does exactly what he just said he did. Like, there's even the special ceremony and everything. And the trolls are like, oh, maybe you're a good person and we shouldn't destroy England. And they just go off and have adventures. And it would be Alchemy and the Troll Associates. It could be its own series. And it would be great. It would be like Dead Boy Detectives, that Sandman spinoff about the ghost kids. Or maybe they decide to work within the system and become actively engaged in local politics. I like this plan. I do, too. I like the idea of civically engaged trolls. Oh, man. These trolls are my heroes, hypothetically. Yeah, they're good. They're good trolls. <laughs> yes. Okay, Maybe Marvel, these call theoretical us. trolls. Um, now, meanwhile, they have these gold statues of trolls, and they decide there's no room for them where they currently are, so they're going to put them in Hyde Park, a statuary, and they get Tom to transmute them to lead so that they won't be stolen because they're enormous golden troll statues at the moment. And everyone lives happily ever after. And I really do love the way this ends, because Jean, of course, is being like, you know, cool stepmom to Nathan Christopher. And she posits, you know, most of the mutant kids we found so far have had no parents or have been alienated from them, or have had powers that made it wise to remove them from their home environment. Isn't it nice that we finally found a boy with an accepting family and a fairly normal power who just wants to win the Nobel Prize? That's how you're going to be when you grow up, aren't you, Christopher? Smart and sweet and utterly normal. <laughs> oh, Jean. Or possibly you'll turn into Cable. I love that speech. I, I want to frame that speech and just have it as the caption for one of like the big splash pages of Cable. I can just imagine like every time years from now, whenever Jean Grey is like, you know, getting too full of herself or being self-righteous about anything, people just like, you know, clip this snapshot of her talking about how Nathan Christopher was going to turn out normal. And she just flicks them off and moonwalks away. Double Phoenix birds from Jean Grey. Hell yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that's this set of issues. You know, we have a little bit of Inferno wrap up. We have, I'm not going to say an unimportant story about trolls, but it's certainly not tied into any kind of grand plot. A but delightful and largely irrelevant story about trolls. It's so much fun. And I'm really glad we got to talk about this one. Also, that Art Adam's art. Oh, so good. Also, it's really nice seeing X Factor get to do just a fun short story because they don't. They've been the soap opera books so hard for their entire run. And they finally get to go have a two issue adventure and fight mythical creatures and get a happy ending for everybody, and destroy large portions of London. Oh, don't worry. They'll get kidnapped and end up sort of brainwashed space gladiators soon enough. Yeah, but Paul Smith will be drawing it, so I'm actually okay with that. As much as I will miss Walter Simonson, absolutely. I'm so excited. Paul Smith is going to be coming on as the main series artist. And again, while Walter Simonson is, of course, untouchable, this is the first time we've really seen Smith back as a main series artist since his run on the X-Men, which we absolutely loved. That included the Brood Saga. Uh, one of the best arcs, and he's going to be doing cool space stuff. So I feel like this is kind of a win-win. It's good stuff. In the meantime, though, you've got questions. So Joel Blue asks on Tumblr, what would happen if Magic and Eva Bell crossed paths in the time stream? So the thing is, they actually did. In the Uncanny X-Men and all-new X-Men pair of annuals that crossed over maybe a year or two ago, there was a dimension where Ayana was the Sorcerer Supreme in that timeline, replacing Doctor Strange. And she took Eva on as a student, and it was actually really awesome. I recommend that story. It's a two-parter. It's good stuff. Unfortunately, that section of the timeline got functionally erased, um, or that, that future got functionally erased. But 
you know, it was cool while it lasted and Eva remembers it. Exactly. I think we've only got one today, so we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters. I believe I am turning it over to, I am not sure which, but one of the trolls of Old London. For the record, it's totally fi. In ages past, the might of trolls was without equal. We slaughtered men and supped upon their very bones. Even the war acts of Alexander Ostroff could not stay our hands. And even the mighty spells of David Kelch and Nicole Keating no more than slowed us down. But now, feh. If war be not the answer, then we shall crush Britain with what means we have. Fay, foe, fee, fum, let us learn of economics. Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, the splendid Elizabeth Alley will be returning to the studio to fill in while I gallivant around New York. And we'll be talking about 2010's take on 1987 in New Mutants Forever. Forever.